Our scripture passage this morning is from Mark 14. Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. Last week, we looked at Jesus' celebration of the Last Supper uh, with His disciples, and now the scene moves from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, verses 32 through 42, hear the holy, inspired, authoritative, and perfect Word of God read for you now. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, sit here while I pray. And He took with Him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus far, the reading of God's own word. Last week, as I mentioned, we, we looked at the events in the previous verses surrounding the celebration of the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And as we looked at those verses, we saw Jesus proceeding to the cross with confidence and with purpose and in sovereign control of really all the events leading up to His own death. And it was clear as we saw that, right, that Jesus, Jesus' life, it was not being taken from Him, but He, he, he was laying it down of His own accord. But lest we think that, that because this man, Jesus, was also God, his suffering and death was somehow not as bad as it might have been for you or I, we move on to the scene in Gethsemane, where Jesus' confidence is replaced by sorrow, and Jesus' purposefulness is replaced by agony. And Jesus' sovereign control of the situation is replaced by an earnest pleading with God the Father and a disappointing frustration with His own disciples. If in the previous verses we couldn't help but recognize that this man Jesus was and is also God... In the verses before us this morning, we can't help but recognize that, that our Lord Jesus Christ was and is also very much a man who offered loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. 
Our theme this morning is captured in the title of this message. It's the intense sufferings of Jesus. And we're going to consider that theme in four thoughts together this morning. First, the intense sufferings of Jesus are unlike any other. Second, the intense sufferings of Jesus are dealt with through prayer. Third, the intense sufferings of Jesus are exasperated by the failure of His disciples. And fourth, the intense sufferings of Jesus give way to the arrival of His betrayer. So first, the intense sufferings of Jesus are unlike any other. We read beginning at verse 2, and they, or excuse me, 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a word that comes out of the Hebrew. It means literally olive press, and uh, Gethsemane seems to have been a garden or an olive orchard that was located at the base or the foot of the Mount of Olives. Anyway, Jesus and His disciples come to a place called Gethsemane, and there Jesus says to His disciples, sit here while I pray. And we're told he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. The Greek word translated greatly distressed, it's a, it's a very strong word. It's used seldom in Scripture, but it's, it's a word used to describe the experience of, of being moved suddenly to an intense emotional state because of something. And that, that's what happens to Jesus. He's, he's moved here suddenly to an intense emotional state. He's not just a little distressed, he's greatly distressed, very distressed. And then look what Jesus says next, verse 34. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus here is saying that he is, he is filled with so much sorrow that he's afraid he might die. He is filled with so much sorrow that he's afraid the sorrow alone might kill him. Sometimes our kids say, you know, mom and dad, I'm so hungry, I think I'm going to die. And we know that our children are exaggerating. They're not really on the verge of death. But when Jesus, who is himself the embodiment of all truth, says, my soul is filled with sorrow to the point of death, he literally means he is filled with so much sorrow that he's afraid he might die. Now we have to ask, what is going on here? Why is Jesus so overwhelmed in this moment? Well, on the one hand, I think it makes, it makes complete sense, doesn't it? Certainly the thought of dying would bring any one of us a little anxiety. The thought of dying a horrible, tragic, terrible, painful death would be enough to greatly distress the best of us. Right? So that makes sense. But at the same time, we must recognize that, that history is full of people who face their deaths, even their own horrible deaths, with greater courage and resolve than Jesus seems to display here. For instance, uh, Socrates, the Greek philosopher, supposedly, supposedly greeted his own death as a friend and a liberator to a better life. He claimed that he looked forward to it, and those who kind of witnessed his death said, you wouldn't have thought any differently if you watched him die. Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna in the second century, he was, he was hauled into the arena where he was going to be devoured by wild beasts. And, and, and as he's hauled into the arena, he's told to plead for his life, and he's told to renounce his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he might be spared. And instead, Polycarp just stands there, and he says, 80 and 6 years 
have I served him and he's done me no wrong? How can I blaspheme my king and savior? And they opened up the gates and the lions tore him to shreds. Hugh Latimer uh, and his friend Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake in 1555 in England. And the story goes that, you know, they, they started the, the straw or the hay or the, the kindling or whatever was around the stake. They started it on fire, you know, and they were about to suffer and die a horrible, terrible death. And the story goes that Latimer says to his friend who he's tied to the stake with, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that it shall never be put out. And then we think of, you know, some people today. You know, we, we prayed for Lori Coning, Pastor Ken's wife, and she's certainly staring the prospect of her own death in the face. And if you talk to her, you will see profound courage. Right? The point is simply this. Many have faced death, even horrible death, with great courage and resolve. And so what, what, do, we, what do we make of Jesus here? Is Jesus just not as courageous as some others have been in history? Is Jesus just more frightened by death than others have been in history? Or, or is Jesus facing something more than death? Of course, we know that that is exactly what's going on. Jesus here isn't just facing his impending death. He's facing something much more than just death. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, that's what's going on here. Jesus isn't just going to die like Socrates died, like Polycarp died, like Hugh Latimer died, like you or I will die. No, Jesus Jesus is going to give his life as a ransom for many in his death. The prophet Isaiah spoke in the most graphic detail of what this means exactly when he said, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, the intense sufferings of Jesus here are not caused by the simple prospect of his impending death. No, they are, th they are caused by the thought of his bearing the eternal and holy wrath of God against the sin of the world in his death. This is made even clearer by the references in Jesus' prayer to the hour and the cup. In verse 35, we're told that he prayed that the hour might pass from him. And when Jesus speaks of the hour, that's a phrase he uses uh, throughout the Gospels uh, to refer to some predestined moment in time. And he'll talk about how the hour has not yet arrived or how the hour has come. And when Jesus says it, he's, he's just talking about some, some moment that's been spoken about long before that has now arrived or that will arrive. In verse 36, he asks God to remove the cup from him. And in Scripture, the cup is often used as a metaphor for an experience of great suffering. Psalm 11.6 says, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. 
Jeremiah 25, 15, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Okay, in Scripture, the cup is often used as a metaphor for experiencing the wrath of God. When God pours out his wrath on a person or a nation, that person or nation is, is, is told to drink his cup or to, to take this cup. And that's what Jesus is getting at here when he, when he prays in the garden, Father, remove this cup from me. Jesus' sufferings here are unlike any other. Jesus here is agonizing over the prospect of suffering the wrath of God for the sins of his people. He is peering into that cup that awaits him on the cross, and he's, he's pondering the dereliction that will be his on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's looking into the depths of your hell and the depths of my hell and the depths of, of the hell of, of the entire human race and, and of all who will call on his name by faith and his his soul is filled with sorrow to the point of death. James Edwards says it well, it is one thing, fearful as it will be to answer for your own sins before a holy and almighty God. But who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in the world? Tim Keller says, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from the Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, Keller says, and he staggered. Okay, that's what terrifies Jesus here. That's, that's what is causing Jesus such great distress. It's not, just, it's not just the prospect of his death. No, it's the thought of bearing the eternal and holy wrath of God against the sins of the redeemed in his death. Boys and girls, in a moment, we're going to see that one way to fight sin and temptation in our lives is through prayer. But there is another way that we ought to bring alongside prayer, and it's simply to keep this image of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane fresh in your mind. Because you see, when, when, when temptation comes, we, we tell ourselves, don't we, that sin sin's no big deal. It's not going to hurt anybody. No one might even know about this or that. Or, or maybe we think this is just how things work in the world. We're, we're masters at justifying sin and at giving ourselves permission to gratify those desires of our flesh. And yet, and yet sin is a big deal. Just consider what it did to our Savior even before He was hanging on the cross. The prospect of dying for your sin and for my sin caused him such great distress that it made him sorrow to the point of death. Luke tells us that it caused him such great distress that he, that he sweat great drops of blood. That is the, the anguish that was pressing upon his soul. And so when temptation comes, I, I say to you, boys and girls, think of Jesus in the garden Think of his intense sufferings, which were caused by our sins. 
And then ask yourself this question, how, how can I go about doing these things which cause my Savior so much sorrow? Secondly, this morning, the intense sufferings of Jesus are dealt with through prayer. We see this in verses 35 and 36, and again in verses 39 and 41. Jesus prays, and then we're told he prays again, and then in verse 41, we're told he, he prays yet a third time. And we're not left in the dark about what his prayers consisted of. No, no, we are told what exactly he's praying. He's praying, first of all, for relief, isn't he? He prays, in verse 35, that the hour might pass from him. In verse 36, that the, that the cup might be removed from him. And what we see here is remarkable, really. I mean, here we have, we have Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, and who has known perfect and blessed and unbroken fellowship with God the Father from all eternity, and who's one with God the Father in mind and purpose. We have that Jesus asking for permission not to go to the cross. That, that's what we see here. Jesus is saying, Father, is there, is there any other way for me to redeem your people? Is there, is there any other way for me to save them? Is there any other way than for me to endure this cup of horrendous suffering? Friends, we're on hallowed ground here. I don't know if we realize that. As we hear our Lord speak with his heavenly Father in this way, we're on hallowed ground. There are things in this that are, that are too wonderful for us to know. There are. Jesus, the beloved Son, perfectly righteous in every way, asking for permission not to go to Calvary. It was that horrendous, that horrific. That said, Jesus doesn't only pray for relief, does he? Jesus also uses prayer and takes time in his prayer to humbly submit to the Father's will. He asks for the cup to be removed from him, and then he says, not what I will, Father, but what you will. Not my will be done, but your will be done. People of God, this is, this is the prayer of faith. This is the prayer of a believer Sometimes in life, people pray for things, healing, maybe money, maybe a spouse, and it's good to pray for those things. It's good to ask God for the things that we need and what we desire, but then, but then these people won't, won't get those things, and, and then some tragically deceived but well-meaning Christian will come along and say, you know, if you just prayed with enough faith, then you'd get what you're praying for. It's your problem. You don't, you don't have enough faith. That's why you're not healed. That's why you're not married. We've all heard it. And yet Jesus, he prays for this cup of suffering to be removed from him. He prays for the hour to pass by him. And we know, don't we, neither one of those things happen. And yet would any of us dare say that it's because Jesus did not have enough faith? No, we wouldn't dare say that. Jesus shows us what faith looks like. Jesus shows us how faith operates. Jesus shows us what it means to pray in faith. Faith does not make demands of God. Faith looks to God for help ever and always, but at the same time, it submits to the sovereign will of God. 
in any and all circumstances. That is what Jesus does. But the intense sufferings of Jesus, they're dealt with through prayer, aren't they? And no doubt in this we find a pattern and an example for us in how, in how we are to deal with times of great suffering in our own lives. James 5.13 says, is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. That's what Jesus does. That's what, that's what you and I are to do as well in times of suffering and anguish. We must, we must pray. I received a call this week from a guy who is going through a very, very, very difficult time in his life. And I'm going to tell you right now, he doesn't go to our church. So you don't have to start jumping through those hoops and try to figure out who it is. Went through a very, very difficult time in his life. And he's beside himself with grief. And he would definitely say right now that his soul is filled with sorrow to the point of death. Okay, that's where he's at. He's in a bad, bad, bad place. And he called me and he said, Dirk, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to go on. I, 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 I'm utterly beside myself. And I, you know, I affirmed his pain and his grief and his sorrow. And then I said to him, friend, the example of our Lord calls you to pray. You must pray. You must take your grief and your misery and your suffering and your shame to God, and you must ask Him for relief. While at the same time, submitting to His sovereign will by faith. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you are, you are suffering. You don't know what to do with yourself. Well, this is, this is what you must do. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. I think it's noteworthy. It ought, not, it ought not be lost on us that even for Jesus, even for Jesus, prayer does not serve as some magic formula in putting an end to his suffering. No, he goes and he prays and he comes back and he finds his disciples sleeping and he gets a little upset with them and then he returns to prayer again. And he comes back, and he goes around with his disciples again, and he returns to prayer a third time. Okay, this is, this is, this is hard work. This isn't, just a, this isn't just, you know, a little medicine you take, and, and everything's all better. No, Jesus is forced to return again and again and again to prayer. But that is what he does. And in doing so, he provides an example for his suffering people to follow. Third this morning, the intense sufferings of Jesus are exacerbated by the failure of his disciples. In verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, remain here and watch. And we're told he goes a little farther. He falls down, he prays. Verse 37, he comes and he finds his disciples sleeping. And he points right at Peter. Remember, Peter had just been a little bit, Jesus had just gave Peter a dire warning uh, before the rooster crows, you're going to have denied me three times. And Peter says, I never will. Jesus comes back. He finds Peter sleeping. He puts the finger right in Peter's chest. I don't know if he did, but you get it. He looks at Peter and he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour, Simon? I didn't ask you to watch with me all night long. Could you not watch one hour? And then Jesus goes away and he prays again. And we're told in verse 40 that again he comes back and he finds them sleeping. And Mark tells us why. It's because their eyes were heavy. Of course their eyes are heavy. 
It's late at night. They've just had a big meal. Jesus has just told them some some rather disturbing things. Of course, their eyes are heavy. And we're told Jesus, he goes away a third time and he comes back and he says, are you still sleeping? It is enough. And the Greek word translated enough, it's it's a word that it's difficult to, to bring into the English exactly what it means, but most Greek scholars say that is, that is a word that denotes exasperation on the part of Jesus. It's almost as if he comes back this third time, and he finds his disciples sleeping, and he says, what's the use? What's the use? His sufferings are exacerbated by the failure of his disciples. In his hour of greatest need, his closest friends can't even stay awake with him and watch with him and pray with him for one hour. We all know the blessedness of human fellowship in our times of need. We know what it's like to grieve alongside others. We know what it's like to worry alongside others. We know what it's like to face uncertainty alongside others. We know what it's like to have others hold our hands in times of great pain and suffering. It's much better than going through those things alone. And yet here's Jesus bearing the eternal weight of God against the sin of the human race alone. Alone. Notice what he says to his disciples in verse 38. There he says to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What does that mean? Well, remember what the disciples have just said. Jesus told them that they'd all fall away on account of him. And they all responded by saying, you know, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And Jesus, well, here he, he, he shows, he does not deny their sincerity. Jesus knows that these men, they truly do desire to follow him and to serve him and to stand by him through thick and thin. He knows that. He gets that. It's true. Their spirits are willing. But their flesh is weak, Jesus knows. And that means that, that, that Jesus not only knows that they desire to follow him and serve him and stand by him, but Jesus also knows that they cannot do it. They are unable to do it. And Jesus here is acknowledging the two natures that exist within all true believers on this side of glory. There is on the one hand the the spiritual nature which is alive to the things of God and which is ready and willing to serve God at all costs. But within the believer, there is is also at the same time the fleshly nature, which remains bound to sin and dead to the things of God. And it's this fleshly nature that makes us people who are prone to wander from God. These two natures, the spiritual nature and the fleshly nature, they exist within all believers. And Jesus is acknowledging them here when he says the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Paul speaks about these two natures in Romans 7, and he speaks about how these two natures are at war within him. Of course, it's, it's, it's because of these two natures that Jesus' disciples must watch and pray. Because it's through watchfulness and prayer that believers wage war against the weakness of their flesh. Of course, the disciples, they don't don't watch and pray, do they? They sleep. 
And it's no coincidence then that very shortly, in just the next verses to come, the weakness of the flesh will be on display for all the world to see. As James and John head for the hills, and as Peter denies him three times. And their failure, the failure of the disciples that we're about to read in the upcoming weeks, their failures can no doubt be traced back to this moment in the garden when Jesus found them sleeping instead of praying. Christian, let me ask you today, are you watching and praying? Are you remaining spiritually vigilant as a follower of Christ? Are you asking God daily to watch over you, to watch over your marriage, to watch over your children, to watch over your work, to keep you from the devil and his schemes? Or have you maybe fallen asleep? Have you maybe become spiritually lazy? Are you, are you, are you coasting in the Christian life, just sort of thinking, you know, all is, all is well. I'm in a good place. Well, if so, beware. Beware. Your spirit might be willing. I don't doubt that at all. But your flesh is tragically weak. Apart from the grace of God, you, you are unable It's not just that you haven't. Apart from the grace of God, you are unable to remain faithful to Christ. Believe it or not, you have within you a natural tendency, a default position to hate God and your neighbor. You must understand this about yourself and about your heart. You must not underestimate what your sinful heart is capable of doing. And you must watch. And you must pray, and you must look to God for help ever and always. Finally, this morning, the intense sufferings of Jesus give way to the arrival of his betrayer. Look at verse 42. Jesus has expressed his exasperation with his disciples, and now he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus tells his disciples to get up, and he says, he says, he said, let us go. But notice, notice where Jesus is going, and you actually have to look at the following verses to see where Jesus is going. He's not going away from his betrayer. I mean, that's kind of common logic, right? Let's get up. There's my betrayer. Let's go. <laughs> that's not how Jesus does it. Let's get up. There's my betrayer. And the following verses show he walks to his betrayer. And it's clear. As Jesus does this, that he has resolved to go to the cross. He has resolved to do the Father's will. And yet the intense sufferings of Jesus in Gethsemane teach us something very important about doing the will of God. And it's that doing the will of God begins right here. It begins in one's heart. You see, friends, before Jesus gives up his body on the cross for our sins, he gives up his will to the Father in the garden. Before Jesus surrenders his life, he surrenders his heart. Before he drinks the cup of God's wrath on Calvary's cross for you and for me, he had to peer into that cup and he had to ponder the ramifications of drinking that cup and he had to say, Not my will, 
but yours be done. As one commentator well says about this scene in Gethsemane, here we learn that the cross is a matter of the heart before it is a matter of the hand. It's a matter of the will before it's a matter of reality. And it's no different for us, beloved. The battle between obedience to God and disobedience to God is won or lost right here. It's in here that we must surrender to God's will by faith. It's in here that we must suffer. And that's where most of the suffering happens in our obedience to Christ, isn't it? Right in here. So it is with Jesus. If you look at his suffering and death on the cross, he suffered on the cross, but we might dare say he suffered more in the garden internally, right? This is often where most of that suffering comes. Right in here as we die to ourselves and to the desires of our own hearts. The cross that Jesus calls us to bear as we follow him, it's a matter of the heart before it's a matter of the hands and feet. Boys and girls, obeying mom and dad begins in here. Before you obey mom and dad, you must first die to yourself and those things you really want to say in here. Young people, the battle for for sexual purity, it begins in here. You must first die to yourself and to the pressures of the world in here. People of God, the battle against greed and the battle against lust and the battle against covetousness and pride, it begins in here. We must first die to those desires in here. We must recognize these desires. We must take them to the Lord and we must say, Lord, this is what I want, yet not my will, but yours be done. And we must take them again and again and again and again if that's what it takes. Now, the fact of the matter is, we've often, maybe more times than not, probably more times than not, definitely more times than not if I'm a true Calvinist, we've often lost the battle in here. Unlike Jesus, we have many, many, many times counted the cost of obedience to God and said, nope, not your will, but mine. Be done. This money that you've given me, I'll do what I want with it, thank you. This body that you've given me, I'll I'll do what I want with it, thank you. This voice that you've given me, I'll do what I want with it, thank you. This experience of sickness and suffering that I'm in, I'll I'll do what I want with it, thank you. I'd much rather grumble and complain and be bitter than say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. I'll do what I want. That's how we operate, isn't it? That's how we roll. That's our natural disposition to say in our hearts, not your will, O God, but mine be done. Yes, friends, the Spirit is willing, but that flesh... That flesh is tragically weak. And we've proven time and time and time again that not only haven't we loved God and others, but we are unable to love God and others. And yet here's the good news. Where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded In the garden, he counted the cost of obedience to God. 
He looked deep into the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink for hell-deserving sinners like you and me. And even though it meant intense suffering beyond which any one of us can even imagine, Jesus said in his heart the very thing he said every moment of every day his entire life. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus said that for you, and Jesus said that for me. And Jesus said that for all who would call on his name by faith, in order that in him we, who often put our wills first, and therefore who need forgiveness for our sins, in order that we might find forgiveness for our sins in him because of his death on the cross, and in order that we who who are unrighteous, so terribly unrighteous, might be declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness, which is credited to our account by faith. Beloved, death came into the world through a man in a garden who said to God, not your will but mine be done, as he ate the forbidden fruit. But life came, and life is coming into the world through another man who in a garden said, not my will but yours be done, as he surrendered his soul to Calvary. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. All that went on in the garden that night long ago is perhaps too wonderful for us to know. But this much we do know, that Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done in order that people like us who've often said, not your will, but mine be done, might find forgiveness for our sins and receive salvation through faith in him. Help us now to become more like him in every way. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand for...
Dear friends, receive the parting blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen.